welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We extend a welcome to all of you tonight as we join the church worldwide, many different places, some already having celebrated, others yet to follow. Many places are moving into Good Friday evening, remembering the sacrifice of our Lord. It is, um, by its own nature, a, a unique time. It's somewhat somber, but also filled with a quiet and almost stunned joy over what the death of Christ has accomplished for us. If you're new to Christianity, I'm so glad you're here because this is uh, the cross work of Christ is the essence of what we believe. And the more you can hear uh, the cross work of Christ preached and made much of, the deeper you're going to be settled in your Christian life. If maybe you're exploring Christianity and you're here tonight under the, the pressing of that interest, uh, well, there's another divine reason you're here too. And that's because he wants you to know about the sin that sent the Savior there, the sin in your own life is as mine was, and also the greatness of his death. We're going to touch on all of that tonight. Uh, this... Uh, Holy Week, or Passion Week as it's called, as I've often done, I've, I've created three different messages and they're all under a theme and or, or an idea. It's, it's uh, the theme of, of these messages or the title of the three overall, the series, if you will, is something I've called Easter Answers. Easter Answers, they're simple questions, particularly that those who are seeking to make sense of Christianity might ask about the elements of Easter. Why did Jesus come to earth and why did he arrive and come to us? That was Palm Sunday as he entered the city of Jerusalem and headed to the great, the greatest work of his life. And uh, tonight we're going to move into the death of Christ and we're going to answer the question, why did Jesus die? And of course, on Easter Sunday morning, we'll talk about why he rose and what was accomplished with that before God the Father. But tonight, I I do want to answer the question, why did Jesus die? And I'm actually going to move, uh, and I was inspired by the song that we opened when Liz uh, met with our team and told us earlier this week that that's where she was heading. Uh, The the wonderful hymn, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time meditating upon that and realized that the places I'd been looking at Scripture matched so much of what that hymn talks about that I wanted to use uh, that hymn as a jumping-off point into a number of different Scriptures that together answer the question, why did Jesus die? But to put it in the language of the hymn writer, why did Jesus die? The answer is to be wounded in our place. O sacred head now wounded, the idea of the wounding of Jesus for our sin leads the thinking of that hymn. And I think it's, it's a way to capture the answer as to why he had to die.
I did a little uh, uh, hymnology uh, work. I studied the hymn a little bit, O Sacred Head. And you may know a little bit about it. It's got an old feel to it, and it's an old hymn, very old. It was actually written as a poem of worship by a Christian mystic, uh, a French Christian mystic, I believe, Bernard of, Cla- of Claveau. And he wrote it uh, a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago. And it made its way into worship in various contexts. Uh, it really wasn't put to music for many, many years after that. A couple of, of uh, hymn writers and uh, and musicians put their hand to it until Johann Sebastian Bach got a hold of it. <laughs> and maybe he's given it the memorable melody we now have. It's a little hidden in history. But uh, the original poem of worship didn't have just three stanzas. It had seven. And each of them was tied to a different part of the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, that went through the physical sufferings of the scourging and then Calvary. And, and there was a verse for the head, his heart, his chest, his sides, his hands, his feet, and his knees, not forgetting that he stumbled under the weight of the cross on the way to Golgotha. And so uh, the ancient church, after Bernard wrote this uh, in Latin, uh, would take one stanza per day in Holy Week and would include that one stanza, and they'd walk through all seven in the seven days of Holy Week. Now, I think something's lost in our modern society because we've made worship somewhat packaged and easy. We've made spiritual truth drive through instead of thought through. And uh, we suffered for that. They didn't have that illness. They spent time thinking about the depths and the meaning and the mysteries of Scripture. And they used poems of worship to do it, and then hymns and other things. And so uh, they spent time meditating on the cross. They were in love with it. But you'll find that the church worldwide that isn't as cheapened as we are by the ease of our life, the church in other places adores the cross, and the bride of Christ always has. It's, uh, It's the one thing that should capture our attention more than any. Oswald Chambers, a writer of the past, though not too distant, put it this way. He said, all of heaven eternally adores the cross of Christ. He was speaking there about the, the angels in heaven, the hosts that surround the throne of God. All heaven eternally adores the cross of Christ. All hell, speaking there about the demonic realm, is terribly afraid of the cross. While humans are the only beings who more or less ignore it. And, and, and he had a point. In the hustle and bustle of our material life and our distracted existence, uh, it is, it's not thought of by most people until they're captured by it through salvation. But the church is captured by it, and we adore his cross, and we're practicing for heaven. We'll be right in step with the angels when we get there because all of heaven will adore him who is worthy to be worshipped because he was slain. And so tonight I want to contemplate the cross and answering the question, why did Jesus die upon it to be wounded in our place? I want to talk from different parts of Scripture about the four great wounds, if you will, that 
came down upon him to achieve your salvation and mine. I want to spend a few minutes tonight, if you will, wondering at the wounds of Jesus. The first of these wounds, and I think you'll see these things on the screen behind me, the first that he suffered for us was the wound of the pain that he bore. Now what I'm going to share with you has been recognized by theologians and Christian thinkers and those that have gone into the depths of the scripture for centuries. We may unearth nothing new for you, but I hope it's still precious to you. There was indeed the wound of the physical pain that he bore. Many places to go in scripture, certainly all the gospel accounts. You know that one-fifth of all the gospels focus on the final week of Jesus. And a, a huge amount of their words focus on the cross work and the agonies of it. The Bible preserves for us what was commonly known throughout history to be the worst type of death by execution imaginable. No one has ever come close to matching the agonies and the extended pain that crucifixion, invented by the Syrians but darkly perfected by the Romans, achieves upon a human body. The Roman emperor Augustus was so bloodthirsty and hated his enemies so much that he preferred crucifixion for every one of them because he said, I want it to be long and I want it to be painful. And indeed, crucifixion was all of that. It was a place in which blood was drawn and suffering and death eventuated from it. But that is part of what Jesus had to go through for you and I. He had to suffer physically, his blood had to be shed, and he had to die because God required a sacrifice for sin. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, we see that the word of God says, surely he, speaking forward in time to the Messiah, the Christ when he came, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I think in those words there is contained a pattern of physical pain along with the other afflictions that he endured. Smitten by God certainly contains the idea of carrying sin, but I like to believe that the afflictions of Jesus physically were in that word afflicted, among many things. He was wounded, I see there that physical pain as well, among greater things. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. Think of the whip coming down upon the back of Christ over and over again, the flesh tearing, the blood flowing, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, the whip lines across the back of Jesus. With his wounds, some translations bring it, we are healed. Why did Jesus die? Well, that sacred head had to suffer the wound of pain. I put it in some words, and here's the best I can come up with in terms of why physical pain and death and, and the shedding of blood had to be a part of what Jesus went through for you. Sin demanded a sacrifice. A sacrifice demanded shed blood. Shed blood demanded a human body that experienced physical suffering and death. And Jesus offered that on the cross for you. In fact, in Hebrews 10:6, the scripture says, 
as he spoke to the Father, a body have you prepared for me, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling his role. Now we have coined a word to talk about the deepest and longest imaginable physical pain. You know what that word is? Excruciating. Where did the word gain its birth? Crucifixion. Excruciating. It came from the Latin word crucis for the cross. We understand that the pain he went through there was remarkable. It was excruciating for him. And because of our sin and because he had to go and be a sacrifice, shedding blood and experiencing physical death, that sacred head had to bear the wound of pain. And he did it for me and for you. The second wound would be what I would call the wound of the sin he bore. He went from the physical suffering to a unique level that only a sinless one could taste. And that was the unique experience of having sin undeserved placed upon him. We go to the next verse in Isaiah 53 to verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is iniquity. Iniquity is the Bible's way of describing sin. It's one of the many words the Bible uses to describe it. Describes a a quality of sin that describes sin as something that we do knowing it's fully wrong in the eyes of God. It's sinning with your eyes open. Iniquity is the word that's often used to describe that. And you and I did that as a way of life. Every single one of us. Every single one. You might think, well, you know, Jesus went through this terrible pain you're talking about, and he took sins upon him, but I've always felt, maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus yet, but you've always reasoned, that among most people you know, you're not that bad a sinner. You've given yourself a pass up to this point. You know a lot of people who've committed horrible sins. And uh, if you put it all on a scale, you're still not that bad. And so you may wonder, was your sin the cause of Christ's death? It's interesting in this passage, immorality's not mentioned in verse 6. Murder's not mentioned in verse 6. The, 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 the kinds of moral and personal sins that we put up there high, high, high on the list that destroy human lives is not mentioned in verse 6. What's mentioned? Going astray from the chief shepherd. All people, according to Romans chapter 1, through the powerful witness of creation, understand in the depth of their hearts that God exists and that he is a God of authority and majesty and power and by virtue of of the beauty of creation, marred but not eclipsed by sin, he is also a God of goodness. That testimony alone, the scripture says, should call forth from us humility and surrender. Our hearts should turn to him and desire to know him and honor him. But Romans 1 tells us that not a one does We do not honor him as God, but we turn in upon ourselves and honor ourselves as God. 
We, we go astray from the very beginning. So what is sin? It is refusing to give God himself the authority and the honor that he so clearly deserves in your life. All we like sheep. Notice that it's not marking out certain truly wicked people whose sin drove Christ to that cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every single human being in human history is wrapped in that language. We have turned everyone, the scripture repeats it, to his own way. What is sin? Turning to my own way, refusing to acknowledge him and his power and greatness and love, refusing to turn to him. I turn away from him and I choose not to honor him. And that's the stem from which everything else that that, that flowers out in sin in my life, that's where it comes from. So all of us have a moral debt that we owe to God. You might argue with those terms. You might say they're too harsh, they're too perfect. Well, he's perfect. You can take your argument up with the perfect Lord, or you can keep listening and find out that he brought a perfect solution. Jesus came and died to suffer the wound of sin being placed upon him. Look at the last part of the phrase. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In some mysterious way, the perfect son of God in the darkest hours of that time on the cross, somehow God the Father imputed, the Bible says, placed upon his perfect son your sin and my sin. In fact, he laid upon him, look at the language, the iniquity of us, and what's the word? All. What an immense load of sin and burden Jesus bore on that night, or in that dark night at noonday on the cross. He did it out of obedience to his Father. I put in, in words that help and make sense to me. Maybe they'll help make sense to you. I wrote this, out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all of our sins. They were imputed to him. That's a biblical word. It means he took ownership of them. They actually belonged to him in those terrible hours, including the guilt for them. This is why Gethsemane was such a battle for the Lord Jesus. We studied this some weeks ago as we went through the Gospel of Luke together. Certainly it was a great battle to think about going through the physical tortures of the cross, but a lot of human beings have faced physical torture bravely. That wasn't the unique power of what Jesus broke through Gethsemane with. When he battled in the garden and he said, Father, if there's any way for this cup not to be taken but not my will, but thine be done. The cup was the cup of God's wrath coming down upon him because he took upon himself sin. The great battle, I think, that Satan put the Lord Jesus into was tempting him as almighty God, the perfect one who had never tasted sin, who thoroughly hated sin, who reflexively judged sin. The, the, the idea of taking our sins on repulsed the Lord Jesus Christ. That repulsed him more than the physical death, the shame, the mocking, everything. It was taking on that which he repulsed as the perfect God. And he took it. 
So why did Jesus have to die? Well, that sacred head had to suffer the wound of physical pain and the shedding of blood and death. And that sacred head had to suffer the wound of bearing my sin. According to Isaiah, all of it for all of us. Then there's a third of the four. He had to die because that sacred head had to suffer the wound of the abandonment of God. This follows the fact that he bore sin, and when he took our sin upon himself, God the Father in his moral perfection cannot be in the presence of sin, cannot behold it. And so in those dark hours on Calvary, the Father actually, if you will, turned away from God the Son. How can that happen in a perfect, seamless trinity? We don't understand it. I've never read a theologian yet that could adequately explain it to me, but I teach it. The scripture teaches us that this was the great exclamation of Jesus at the high point of suffering in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, talking about the cross work. Matthew wrote, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That, in other words, from noon, high noon, the sun at its greatest arc, there was darkness suddenly over all the land for three hours until three in the afternoon. That's how they they, they, they told the time in that language. At about the ninth hour, at the height of all of this, when it had all run its course, so to speak, and perhaps it was at its dark, dark height, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was describing the ultimate anguish, having borne our sin, of having God the Father forsake him. He was fulfilling prophecy, but he was also calling out the depths of the experience he was going through in that moment. I, I pointed out some weeks ago that I believe this is the only time in his earthly ministry that Jesus didn't call God his Father. Because in that moment, with imputed sin upon him, my sin, he was alienated from his father. In some way, we cannot fully understand or adequately explain. And he simply used the word that any human being would use to call out to God. He simply said, God. You can take that for what you will, but it made an impact on me. How can I put that into words? Here was my best attempt. I wrote, because he was bearing our sin, Jesus was abandoned by his heavenly father. He experienced what we could call spiritual death in the sense that he was separated from the father. Now that is part of the great penalty that all people will bear eternally who've refused Jesus Christ in this life. Once physical death occurs, you move into a state where you face an eternal, eternity of spiritual death. The Bible calls it the second death. And you will experience that for yourself, but my Lord experienced it for me. That sacred head had to suffer the wound of the abandonment of God. The cross was excruciating. Bearing our sin was unimaginable to the perfect Son of God. 
And this was indescribable. Because you see, none of us can ever, ever understand what it was like to have a perfect relationship broken. Because we've never had one. We were born into a broken world. We were born sinners. Every relationship we've ever lived in, no matter how blissful it might feel to you, is limited by human sin and at times broken by it. Well, Jesus Christ and God the Father experienced a perfect relationship until in those hours, for the first time in forever, the Father turned away from the Son. For you. You might say, well, this is sobering and this is a terrible price that he paid when I would have to tell you as a preacher, I'm sorry, but I'm not quite finished. Because things became deeper. There was more. I told you there were four wounds that I want to talk about tonight. There was the wound of physical pain there was a, and death. There was the wound of bearing sin. There was the wound of the abandonment that came from the bearing of sin. But there's something else. And sometimes in our modern Christian culture, we really de-emphasize this. We talk about... Uh, People like to redefine hell today. They want to soften it. And they want to take punishment out of it. And so they say, well, hell is just going to be being forever separated from God. Technically, that's not fully true. Because God is everywhere at once. And he will be present in hell. But he'll be present there expressing the fullness of one of his attributes and one only. And that's his wrath. Hell is not going to simply be you being in a place where you're separated from all the good things of God. It's not going to be a dull gray existence where you just don't experience God like you could have. It will be a place where God will actively be pouring his wrath down upon you because that's part of his perfections. He is perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly holy. And sin must be perfectly and eternally judged. It is an offense against an eternal God. Therefore, it must have an eternal penalty. And those in hell today and those heading to hell are going to suffer that. Wrath is part of the result and consequence of sin. And so I believe when the father closed those eyes, when he turned away from his son, in a sense, you could put it this way, the father closed those eyes filled with affection and then they opened full of fury right upon the Lord Jesus. Because the Bible teaches us that he not only was separated from the father, but here's the last thing and don't miss it. He experienced the wound of the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on his own son. Sin was paid for by Jesus as he tasted the wrath of God for it. Don't don't, uh, diminish what Jesus went through and don't diminish what you're headed to if you don't know him. Don't diminish the ugliness of sin and say it doesn't need to be paid for. It can be stepped around. It can be looked at the other way. No. Because God is a just God. So in some unimaginable way, all of the wrath of God was exhausted upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your sin 
and for mine. One theologian I read put it this way, as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. There's the word, I didn't invent it. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. He placed upon him our sin and then the wrath of God poured out. Why? Because a payment had to be made. Do you know that there's no unpaid for sins in heaven? None. They were all suffered for. They were all paid for just by him. Two things as I close and we begin to prepare our hearts for communion, which is the only fitting way to respond to him, right? Given a message like this, I hope you agree. When Jesus accomplished that taking of the wrath of God, there's two things I want you to remember about it. For, the first is the past, your past, your present, and your future were all accounted for. Some people get confused and they think that when they come to Christ, the sins of their past are forgiven, but they still have to work off the new ones. <laughs> Maybe you're under that illusion today. Well, how many of your sins were not even committed when Jesus came to the earth and died? Romans tells us all of them. So in a mysterious transaction, your sins, though not committed, were attributed to him, imputed to him, and then the wrath due them was exhausted on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins were paid for, and your past, your present, and your future all accounted for in that marvelous work. Romans chapter 3 is one of the many places you can go and meditate. I suggest you do. 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned, confirming Isaiah, and fall short of the glory of God. Again, confirming that text. That's the great human dilemma. But the next verse is the place of joy. And are justified what does that word mean? It means you, you are seen in the eyes of God as though you've never sinned and actually as if you have the full righteousness of Jesus right upon you. Justified by his grace, meaning it was a gift from something he did, not anything you did, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How could God do that? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now we've arrived at the cross, haven't we? What's the word propitiation all about? It's a biblical word that, that comes from this great concept of a substitution for you. Theologian I read this week put it this way, propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. What it means is that God said, in order to be satisfied with you, my wrath has to be satisfied. Well, I couldn't do anything about that. He poured his wrath out on the sun. And when his wrath was extinguished, he could look at me and be satisfied to have a relationship with me. Because all of his wrath 
had been extinguished. It's a very deep but precious concept. That sacred head had to be wounded with wrath. Hebrews 2.17 put it this way, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he had to become fully human, live that life perfectly, and die that death so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and look what he did to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, that's, that's beyond adequate human words. I feel very inadequate describing it. But I can say I'm deeply grateful for the fact that that sacred head was wounded and took the wrath of God for me. So that's the the great answer in my stumbling fashion about why Jesus had to die. If you've fully heard it tonight as a believer, I hope that your heart is filled with worship. As a non-believer, you may be filled with wonder because he's working in your life. When I hear this great story, the thing that comes to my lips is, I don't know what to say. What to say. <laughs> well, neither did Bernard of Claveau. Because he said, as he began the third stanza that we sang earlier, what language shall I borrow? To thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. What language shall we borrow? Well, the Bible gave us something wonderful called communion as a symbol that Jesus said to use to remember what he did. We're going to do that. That's the language we'll borrow tonight. If you're a a born-again believer, I encourage you to walk through communion with us. If you've not trusted Christ, trust him right now in this moment. Understand your sin for all that it is and his saving death that I've explained to you tonight taking the wrath of God for you and turn your heart to him in prayer right now and say, Lord Jesus, I need you and take you as my Savior. I see my sin and I want you as my Savior. I want to give my life to you as Lord. Then you can fulfill the last part of the verse where Bernard wrote, Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. 